Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constant from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as the principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health, diabetes outcomes, and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. The opinions and recommendations in this podcast are those of the presenters and not those of Cardio and its sponsors, and are not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Good afternoon. I am Dr. Deborah Gordish, Associate Professor of Medicine at The Ohio State University College of Medicine, a general internist and a member of Cardio's Team Best Practices. In this podcast, we will discuss sleep and its effect on the cardiovascular system. We will explore how different sleep disorders increase cardiovascular risk and share risk reduction techniques for these sleep disorders. With me today is Dr. Daryl Thornton. Dr. Thornton is Associate Professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, a pulmonologist and intensivist, and a member of Cardio's Team Best Practices. He is director of the Center for Health Equity, Engagement, Education, and Research, co-director of education in the Population Health Research Institute, and director of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine. His research interests include community-engaged approaches to improving health equity in respiratory diseases, critical illnesses, and sleep disorders. Welcome, Dr. Thornton. Thank you. It's an honor to be here to discuss this important topic. Let's start with some basics. What is the importance and purpose of sleep, and how does it affect our cardiovascular system? Sleep is a time for rest and repair of the body and brain tissues, and a time for organization of memories. Adenosine builds up in the neurons during the day, leading to neuronal dysfunction, and our bodies clear this during sleep. Sleep is divided into non-REM sleep, consisting of three stages, and REM sleep, which cycle throughout the night about every 90 minutes. Non-REM sleep seems to be a time of cellular repair, and REM sleep is the time of body paralysis and the brain's integration of memories. The cardiovascular system during sleep slows down during non-REM sleep. In fact, there is a 10 to 20% decrease in blood pressure as the night proceeds and starts to increase just a few hours prior to waking. Heart rate follows this pattern and can drop to as low as in the 40s, with its lowest point about midway through the sleep cycle. Respiratory rate decreases concordantly. Heart rate and blood pressure do increase during REM cycles, but the overall trend is a decrease of all the vitals. Let's start with sleep deficiency because it is just so common. What evidence do we have from studies that sleep deficiency is epidemic and is related to cardiovascular risk? Analysis of 2018 data from the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System indicated that 35% of adults have sleep deficiency. That's one in every three of us. The prevalence of sleep deficiency has continued to increase over the last several decades, concurrent with the rise in obesity and type 2 diabetes. Several key landmark studies have implicated various components of sleep deficiency as risk factors for the leading causes of morbidity and mortality in the United States, including type 2 diabetes, transient ischemic attacks or strokes, coronary events, and cardiovascular death. 
A meta-analysis of 43 studies indicated that sleep deficiency was associated with a 13% greater risk for all-cause mortality. So a lack of sleep significantly impairs our cardiovascular system. Tell me about obstructive sleep apnea. Is it also associated with adverse cardiovascular outcomes? Data from a meta-analysis reported that mild, moderate, and severe obstructive sleep apnea were associated with all-cause and cardiovascular mortality in a dose-dependent fashion. Patients with obstructive sleep apnea and metabolic dysfunction are at exceptionally high risk, more than three times, for cardiovascular and cerebrovascular events. Hmm. Much like other cardiovascular risk factors, there seem to be disparities when it comes to diagnosing and treating sleep disorders. Can you elaborate? Sleep disorders are disproportionately distributed among populations that already experience health disparities in the United States including Blacks, Latinos, socioeconomically disadvantaged populations, underserved rural populations, and sexual and gender minorities. The reason for these disparities are not clear, but likely relate to the same reasons for underlying disparities in other health conditions. Non-white adults and adults from lower socioeconomic status groups report less favorable sleep characteristics, including a higher prevalence of short sleep and poorer quality sleep compared to white adults even among those without obstructive sleep apnea. Importantly, these disparities in sleep are associated with social disparities in obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular health outcomes, implicating sleep disorders as a potential driver for some of these disparities through their impact on cardiometabolic conditions. For example, in the National Health Interview Survey, a stronger association between short sleep duration and both diabetes and obesity was found among black adults compared to non-Latino whites. Analysis of the National Health and Nutritional Examination Survey study revealed a stronger relationship between obstructive sleep apnea and hypertension in black and Latino individuals compared to non-Latino whites. My own research has shown that black adults have more severe symptoms and more severe obstructive sleep apnea on presentation compared to white populations. Interesting. So how much sleep is needed, and what are the risks of not getting adequate sleep? The American Academy of Sleep Medicine recommends adults receive seven or more hours of sleep in any 24-hour period, while the National Sleep Foundation recommends seven to nine hours. 52% of the American population chronically falls outside this recommended sleep time. Sleep duration of less than six hours increases the risk of heart attack by 20%, with a 50% increase in coronary heart disease a two-to-four-fold increase in the rates of hypertension, a four-to-five-fold increase in heart failure, and 33 to 58% increase in cardiovascular mortality. Studies show diabetes has an increased prevalence in those with shortened or disrupted sleep cycles. There is so much data associated with poor sleep that the American Heart Association has recognized the importance of adequate sleep time, adding it as one of life's essential eight for cardiovascular health in 2022. This change moved the list from seven to eight essentials. Some patients just do not get enough sleep and others have insomnia where they want to sleep but are unable to fall asleep. Is there a difference in cardiovascular risk between sleep time deficiency and insomnia? Well, not from a cardiovascular perspective. Lack of sleep, whether from just simply not going to bed at an appropriate time or insomnia, the actual inability to fall or stay asleep, has the same negative cardiovascular effects. 
Insomnia is just harder to treat than just telling someone to go to bed earlier. Definitely. What is the prevalence of insomnia in the U.S.? Insomnia is common, with short-term sleep disturbances reported by about 30% of adults and chronic insomnia by 10% of the adult population. Insomnia is more common in older adults, affecting up to 63% of those over the age of 60. Other risk factors for chronic insomnia include black race, lower socioeconomic status, family history of insomnia, being divorced or separated, female sex, shift work, and inactivity. Data in Latino patients demonstrates more heterogeneity based on ancestral origin, but both black race and Latino ethnicity show compounding by social disadvantage. Since getting adequate sleep is so important, what treatment steps are recommended for insomnia? Counseling patients on importance and the need for sleep can sometimes, or at least should, help with sleep deficiency. Lifestyle management and cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia are the first-line treatments before medications. Lifestyle modifications include the bedroom being quiet, dark, and cold, not varying bedtime and awakening by more than two hours in either direction, avoiding exercise for at least two hours prior to sleep, keeping electronics out of the bedroom, and limiting use of these electronics before bed, limiting caffeine after lunch, and finally, reserving the bedroom for sleep and sex only. Many patients find these simple techniques very helpful at improving their sleep. Some patients, particularly those with chronic insomnia, need more personalized therapy with a trained mental health provider for cognitive behavioral therapy. These have traditionally been one-on-one -on -one therapy sessions, but there are increasingly available opportunities in groups and online options. It should be noted that many of these management options may not be readily available for individuals who are socioeconomically disadvantaged. I have found that the VA system has an online free resource for cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia that's available to all regardless of military service. While many patients and physicians find it easier to just prescribe a pill, medication is really second-line treatment for insomnia. The choice of medication depends on the type of sleep disruption and patient comorbidities. Thank you. That is a lot of important information on how lack of sleep affects our heart health. Many of my patients, though, report adequate sleep time, but similar symptoms of daytime sleepiness and fatigue. Frequently, this turns out to be sleep apnea, disordered breathing while asleep. Are there similar cardiovascular concerns with this? Well, sleep disordered breathing also affects cardiovascular risk. Sleep apnea can be divided into central and obstructive with obstructive sleep apnea the most common etiology. It's characterized by recurrent complete, or apneas, and partial, or hypopneas, obstructive events of the upper airway, resulting in intermittent hypoxemia, which leads to autonomic fluctuation and sleep fragmentation. Individuals with severe sleep disorder breathing have two to fourfold higher odds of complex arrhythmias and the obstructive sleep apnea-associated symptom of excessive daytime sleepiness is associated with an increased prevalence of cardiovascular disease and events. Interestingly, the prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea is as high as 40 to 80% in patients with concomitant cardiovascular health problems, including hypertension, heart failure, coronary artery disease, pulmonary hypertension, atrial fibrillation, and even stroke. So obstructive sleep apnea seems to increase cardiovascular risk. 
and cardiovascular disease increases the risk of obstructive sleep apnea. That makes you question which is the chicken and which is the egg. What is the pathophysiology of sleep apnea on the cardiovascular system? Several theories explain how obstructive sleep apnea increases cardiovascular risk. One is that the pharyngeal occlusion of obstructive sleep apnea causes an abrupt drop in intrathoracic pressure, which leads to an increased transmural pressure in all cardiac chambers and great vessels, causing inflammatory reactions in the cardiac tissue. Another hypothesis is recurrent airway obstruction resulting in intermittent hypoxia and autonomic fluctuations, which lead to chemical stressors on the tissue. The culmination of repeated sleep disturbances and subsequent chemical tissue stressors over time result in long-term deficits in the heart-brain circulation and metabolism. What are the risk factors for sleep apnea and who should I screen? Risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, include male sex, older age, black race, family history, obesity, and craniofacial dysmorphisms. These anatomical abnormalities include retronathia and large tonsils and increased soft tissue in the neck region. I would consider screening if a patient presents with typical symptoms of snoring, poor sleep efficiency, and a positive score on the STOP-BANG questionnaire. The STOP-BANG questionnaire is one of the most widely accepted screening tools for obstructive sleep apnea. The American Association of Sleep Medicine recommends annual OSA screening for certain high-risk adults. Really? Yearly? Which patients would that be for? You can use the acronym HEARTS, H-E-A-R-T-S. H for heart failure, E for elevated blood pressure, A for atrial fibrillation or AFib, R for resistant hypertension, T for type 2 diabetes, and S for stroke. Okay. You mentioned obesity as a risk for sleep apnea, and the prevalence of obesity continues to be an increasing American and global problem. Can you tell us a little bit more about this relationship? Evidence implicates bidirectional relationships whereby obesity can lead to sleep disorders and deficiencies, and conversely, where sleep deficiencies and disorders lead to weight gain. Obesity is the most prevalent risk factor for sleep and obstructive sleep apnea with obstructive sleep apnea occurring in over 40% of patients when the BMI is over 30 kilograms per meter squared. Obesity is also the most important reversible factor for obstructive sleep apnea. The Wisconsin Sleep Cohort studies showed a six-fold increase in the odds of developing moderate to severe OSA with a 10% weight gain, which also resulted in a 32% increase in the apnea-hypopnea index. The AHI is a metric of OSA severity, independent of both age and initial body weight. Wow, just a 10% weight gain. Yes, but a 10% weight loss was associated with a 26% decrease in AHI and reduced OSA severity. Even in the absence of sleep apnea, obese patients have more awakenings, less refreshing sleep, and higher scores on the Epworth Sleepiness Scale a validated tool to screen for excessive daytime sleepiness. Sleep deficiency, in turn, results in excessive daytime sleepiness, which promotes physical inactivity, poor dietary habits, and mood changes, leading to further weight gain. In fact, a U-shaped curve exists with sleep duration, with some people getting too much sleep and other people not getting enough sleep. 
both groups tend to have higher body weight than people getting the ideal of 7 to 9 hours of sleep with a lower BMI. A meta-analysis of short sleep duration and obesity in adult populations demonstrated that one hour less sleep is associated with a 0.35 kilogram per meter squared increase in BMI. Sleep deprivation and obesity are both linked to glucose intolerance, insulin resistance, and hormone changes such as cortisol, leptin, ghrelin, and orexin that contribute to hypertension, inflammation, and sympathetic activation and subsequent cardiovascular disease. That is some really fascinating evidence on obesity in both sleep deprivation and obstructive sleep apnea. What about obesity do we think causes this? This has led to the hypothesis that visceral adipose tissue could play a major role in the pathogenesis of all sleep disorders through multiple mechanisms, including adipose tissue dysfunction and inflammation through pro-inflammatory cytokines. Excess visceral and ectopic body fat are key indicators of adipose tissue dysfunction. In susceptible individuals, adipose tissue responds pathologically to positive caloric balance, leading to deposition of fat in non-physiologic storage areas, termed ectopic fat. This leads to inflammation, adipocytokine dysregulation, and even insulin resistance. In the Dallas Heart Study, visceral adipose tissue, independent of body size, was associated with higher glucose and insulin, lower adiponectin, greater low-density lipoprotein particle number and size, and smaller size, and higher high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. An extensive body of work using dedicated imaging techniques has consistently shown that there is substantial individual variation in accumulation of abdominal fat that predicts adverse cardiometabolic risk and at any BMI, an excess of visceral or ectopic fat is associated with insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes, a dyslipidemic atherogenic inflammatory profile, and adverse cardiovascular outcomes. That's interesting. Now, getting back to OSA, how would I officially diagnose sleep apnea? Well, suspected obstructive sleep apnea can be confirmed with a referral to sleep medicine who would obtain a polysomnogram, generally done at an overnight sleep center. Home sleep apnea testing can be arranged, but is less sensitive and less specific. Diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea in the presence of symptoms, including nocturnal breathing disturbances, daytime sleepiness, and fatigue despite sufficient opportunity to sleep without another known medical cause, is established by an apnea hypopnea index, or AHI, greater than 5, or a respiratory event index greater than or equal to 5. In the absence of OSA symptoms, scores for AHI less than 15 are considered mild OSA, 15 to 30 are considered moderate OSA, and greater than 30 are considered severe OSA. What are the proven effective treatments for sleep apnea? Weight loss is the first-line treatment for sleep apnea. Weight loss can be accomplished with diet, exercise, medications including the new GLP-1 inhibitors, and even bariatric surgery. Patients can work with their insurance plans and providers' offices regarding coverage. There are also treatment options that improve the airflow across the oral pharynx. These include both dentist-fitted oral appliances and oral surgeries. Oral devices seem better tolerated than CPAP in certain patients. Inspire is a unique device that has promising data, 
It's a small device placed during the, an outpatient surgery that delivers mild stimulation to key airway muscles, allowing the airway to remain open during sleep. It's controlled by a small handheld sleep remote to adjust the amount of stimulation. With this device, 90% of patients had decreased snoring, and there was a 76% decrease in sleep apnea events. Finally, there is the traditional treatment of CPAP or BiPAP. These treatments use airway pressure to stent open the airways and allow easier airflow. CPAP seems to improve blood pressure, but unfortunately has not yet been directly proven to reduce adverse cardiovascular outcomes. Reasons for this are unclear, but may be related to intolerance of the CPAP in studies. You just mentioned GLP-1 inhibitors to help with weight loss for obstructive sleep apnea. Are there other medications that could be used to treat sleep apnea? Interestingly, there's increasing information on medications, particularly SGLT2 inhibitors. SGLT2 inhibitors include metabolic changes beyond just the induction of glucosuria, particularly on fat metabolism and apnea hypopnea index. Preliminary studies have shown reduction in weight, hemoglobin A1c, and AHI with SGLT2 use in patients with diabetes and obstructive sleep apnea. Another study showed a reduction in oxygen desaturation index in patients with moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea, obesity, and type 2 diabetes over a 24-week pilot study with 5 milligrams of dapagliflozin. These studies suggest that SGLT2 inhibitors may be a novel and effective therapy to prevent and treat OSA. Further studies will need to be done before this would become a mainstream treatment. It is absolutely fascinating to think of treating sleep apnea with medications, and I look forward to future data as it emerges. I want to thank Dr. Daryl Thornton for an engaging and enlightening discussion on sleep and cardiovascular risk. What are the main takeaways you would like our audience to remember from this podcast? Sleep is important. Lack of sleep or disruptive sleep not only makes us feel tired and sluggish the next day, it has an effect on our bodies that increases the risk of cardiovascular diseases. Getting adequate sleep and improving sleep quality decreases these risks. There certainly are some excellent takeaways that I picked up today, particularly the importance of sleep. As a primary care provider, one change I have recently made is that I have added in sleep habit questioning, including sleep time and quality, to my healthy lifestyle questions during physical exams. This information reinforms the value in doing that. Thank you, Dr. Thornton, once again for this important information. Have a great rest of your day and a good night's sleep. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Gordish. And a special thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to Cardio Radio. This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.